Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 88, The Changing Empire. Now, first, a huge thanks to Christy Lee Seaton and Alexander P. for their donations to the podcast. As always, you can donate on PayPal or become a recurring pledger on Patreon. Either way, you'll get access to all the cool stuff I throw out there, access to all of the episode transcripts, the History of Bonsco miniseries, and if you come here, I can show you around. And again, I'm always looking for new ideas, new cool stuff you guys think I could do for you. Uh, so, getting into it. Last time... We saw more Balkan rebellions against the Ottomans flare up in Bulgaria and Thessaly, only to have each one crushed in turn. The Ottomans then faced their own setbacks with the rebellion in Anatolia and some losses to the Habsburgs in Hungary. However, they then had to pull back from the scene as the Wallachian voivoda Michael the Brave slowly began taking control of Moldavia and Transylvania, briefly uniting the three into his own kingdom before facing the wrath of the Habsburgs and the Poles, who ultimately took his lands and then assassinated him. In his wake, Poland retained control of Moldavia, but was too preoccupied with the war with Sweden to do very much else there. Then, a rebellion in Transylvania attempted to impose a new pro-Ottoman and anti-Habsburg regime. The new Voivoda of Wallachia invaded and put an end to that. Lastly, we saw the premature death of Sultan Mehmed III and the ascension of his 13-year-old son, Ahmed. But before we get into the main narrative, I want to speak in more detail about some of the economic changes that have been going on in the empire. You've heard me mention how the Spanish importation of silver had finally brought inflation to the Ottoman Empire, resulting in corruption coming to nearly every part of Ottoman administration. Now, I want to explain in broader terms how the overall economic system, and therefore the political and even military systems, were changing. First, another thing we've already discussed, this shift in east-west trade from going through the Ottoman territories to either north through the newly formed Russian state or south around the Horn of Africa via the Portuguese kind of route, the one they developed. Either way, the Ottomans were losing taxes levied on products that used to pass directly through their territory to European markets. To quote an article on, titled the article is a synopsis of the Ottoman money and economic history by Halil Inelchuk, quote, the English were estimating that the Ottoman treasury was going to lose at least 300,000 gold coins in customs revenue per year with the end of the spice and silk trade towards 1620, end quote. Now, with my research showing a total revenue of around 8 million gold coins around this period, this means that the loss of these, this trade alone was costing the Ottomans maybe around 4% of their annual revenue. But... Really, that was just the beginning of their problems. To add to this, the Ottomans had devalued their currency, which was further exacerbating these income problems and the inflation problems. 
And besides decreasing revenue, the state was also facing increased costs. There was an approximately fourfold increase in the number of paid Janissaries at the end of the 16th century. Eventually, within the century that we're just beginning, the 17th century, the total number of Janissaries would reach 100,000, putting extreme strain on the state treasury to pay them all. Though, for now at least, the Janissaries are still an effective fighting force, so the government is getting something for its money. But the greater economic challenge facing them is beyond just trade. The Ottoman Empire was built on a fundamental imperial idea that is really centuries old by this time. The wealth of the state was built on land and not on commerce. Now, technically, as in many empires, all the land belonged to the leader, the sultan in this case, and the sultan hands out land as a reward. The holders of that land, timars, would then manage it and submit a portion of their crops paid as taxes. But, vitally, the land did not belong to the timar. It could be taken if the timar failed to cultivate it for three years, in which case it would formally be repossessed, or if the timar died. An article on the collapse of the 16th century Ottoman financial system pointed out that, quote, taking into account the difficulty of transporting the collected crops to the center, then exchanging them with money and distributing the money to soldiers and officers in the mentioned era, collection of revenue of a certain era by soldiers and officers in and on behalf of them in return for service formed the base of the Timar system. End quote. Now, this kind of tax farming, this shift to using private citizens to collect taxes as opposed to relying on the kind of, not nobles, but the people who control the land on behalf of the state, well, it had happened plenty of times before. The Romans had done it, other empires had done it. However, more importantly for this moment is that it made the state highly reliant on the price of raw agricultural materials. Still, Importantly, the system was largely self-sufficient. With agricultural economies being mostly domestic at the time, an empire was, well, like the Ottoman itself, mostly a self-sufficient thing. So any trade that was going on, things coming in and out of the empire were nice. They added to things, but they weren't necessary for the empire to really survive. It grew enough agricultural products to feed itself. Now consider how modern states today have a variety of revenue streams from many different industries. You know, if the price of a particular good goes down, or even if wages in a particular area go down, the United States, for instance, well, the treasury is going to be okay because it's not super reliant on just what, I don't know, like lawyers make or something. But the Ottomans only took taxes in the form of agricultural products. I mean, there were some levies on trade as we established before, but also as we established, it was a fairly small percentage of the total revenue. And so... But with those changes in trade routes, the Ottomans became increasingly reliant on those agricultural taxes. And, well, this all interacted with yet another change in an important way, because Europe was changing. Capitalism was gradually coming to Europe. The joint stock company had recently been invented, allowing people to pool capital and limit their risk in case a venture failed. In most cases, bunch of people pool their money together to fund a ship to go off to the, you know, Indies or something to gather spices and come back. And if the ship fails to come back, not everyone is going to be financially ruined because there are some legal mechanisms in there to reduce their individual liabilities. As countries like England, Spain, and the Netherlands 
gradually began to see international trade and capital-driven businesses become more central to their economies, both the economies and the thinking about how they functioned changed. Although the Industrial Revolution is still almost two centuries away, small-scale manufacturing was picking up in Europe and decreasing in the Ottoman Empire. The result was that increasingly, Europe, with what trade was going on, was purchasing raw materials from the Ottomans and then selling the finished products at high prices, a relationship similar to that of the European powers to their colonies later on. And it doesn't take a genius to know, or a historian, that that relationship was not great for the economies. At selling cheap, kind of commodified products and then buying specially designed high-value, high-value ad products back really puts you in a disadvantaged economic position. But in the Ottoman context, all this had even more effects. In particular, it increased demand for, and therefore the prices of, all those raw materials, including agricultural ones, which resulted in shortages. In addition, This meant that those who controlled this production became wealthier, while the peasants who faced the brunt of those higher prices without really benefiting from them saw, well, yeah, none of the benefits. And so it created a sort of microcosm of sort of increased wealth at the top, less at the bottom, something everyone today is probably familiar with. And, well, as we all know, that's not exactly a recipe for societal stability. Now, lastly, I wanted to mention how all this is affecting the Ottoman military. Remember, the Timars, in addition to being responsible for growing crops, paying taxes, and kind of managing the area they run, also had to give foot soldiers. The Sipahis, on the other hand, were were responsible for providing cavalry, and then you have the Janissaries. It's kind of three core parts of the Ottoman army. But with the onset of new military technologies like, well, gunpowder, and handheld gunpowder weapons, obviously, as opposed to artillery, the Sipahis in particular were becoming more obsolete. Now, there's still going to be cavalry for another few centuries, but just this particular type of cavalry was becoming less relevant and less effective. And with these economic changes, more and more Timars were actually paying more money in order to be exempt from military service. All this led the Ottomans to gradually focus more on building a professional standing army as opposed to a kind of levied army. After all, these technologies like arquebuses, right, these kinds of early guns, well, it's not so easy to just hand them to an untrained peasant and have them use them effectively. They require a lot more training than even just like a pike or a sword or something. Now, with the need for military service from Timars decreased and the need for cash to pay for a professional professional army increasing, once these Timars were dying, instead of giving their land to another Timar, it was increasingly taken over directly by the Ottoman state. And once this happened, the Ottomans were turning to tax farming to gain revenue from that land. Now, tax farming was a pretty bad practice. What happened was, the government contracted with a private individual, so it's not like a government agent is coming to collect this revenue, it's a business person. But the way they hired these business people is particularly interesting. It was done via an auction in which all these various contractors who wanted to be the tax farmers would promise the increasing amount of revenue. They would bid up how much revenue they would bring the state in order to receive a contract to collect that revenue. Then that person would have to collect money above that already inflated number in order to make a profit themselves. 
it's pretty easy to see how this basically just encourages these numbers to go up and up and up and up and encourages these tax farmers to use abusive practices to take as much tax revenue as possible. And anyone with a basic understanding of economics knows that there's an optimal tax rate. You tax too little, you're not gaining enough revenue for the government, you tax too much, and you're discouraging people from producing, you're reducing the size of the economy. And of course, we know economists debate a lot about where that level is, but one thing that's pretty certain is that tax farming as a practice tended to push that level way too high. And so ultimately, despite the fact that tax farming is really designed to get more revenue for the state, in all likelihood, it's actually decreasing that total amount of revenue by harming the economy as a whole. Now, this whole process I just mentioned had more or less begun about 150 years before the year we're talking about right now, but now's the period when it's really starting to take off. In summary, to quote Ahmed Tabagulu's History of the Turkish Economy, quote, The Timar system had begun to lose its significance since the early times of the 17th century, with the structural changes occurring in the world economy, such as monetary relations becoming widespread, price movements, and soldiership becoming a job owing to the war technology and transition from monetary capitalism to industrial capitalism, end quote. Okay, so... I know that was a very, very long aside, but I'll hope you'll appreciate some of the insights into how all these broad, gradual changes are affecting every element of this story, as well as, of course, the lives of Bulgarians and all of the other subjects within the empire. So we left off with the ascension of the 13-year-old Ahmed to the throne. Now, interestingly, he broke up with tradition and did not have his 12-year-old brother Mustafa executed on his ascension. Now, whether this was on the advice of his grandmother, who held substantial influence in the court, I'll talk about that more next episode, or whether it was simply that a 13-year-old boy didn't really feel like murdering his younger brother, well, either way, it was a very practical choice. Obviously, at 13 years old, Ahmed could not have children yet, and so killing his brothers would leave the dynasty in a very precarious position, plain and simple. There was no guarantee that he would or even could have children, and so it was best to wait until he had some children of his own before possibly making that decision to sort of winnow out the members of the dynasty in his generation. But importantly, his decision to spare his brother is going to be very important later on. So this is the situation as a whole. You've got a 13-year-old on the Ottoman throne. Poland is dominating Moldavia, but is distracted by war with Sweden. Radu Sherban is the voivoda of Wallachia, who just won the Battle of Brasov, which prevented the Ottomans of taking back control of Transylvania, and following his victory, he was able to make an agreement with the Ottomans. They, well, frankly, the Ottomans were in no position to fight back and try to take control over any of their former vassal states, and so, while at this point the war, the long Turkish war with the Habsburgs, didn't end, it did go into kind of a cold state, and... As a whole, the Ottomans now don't really have very much influence in Wallachia, Moldavia, or Transylvania. Now, evidently, Radu Sherban was an excellent leader of Wallachia during these years. So, there's the note. Good for them. They finally have a good leader uh, and one who's not taking them off to war everywhere. So, although the Ottomans were able to kind of wind down the European front to give their young sultan some time to develop, well, they weren't so lucky in the east. 
Remember that 13 years earlier, the Ottoman-Safavid War had ended with the Ottomans taking substantial land on their eastern frontier. The Safavids had never forgiven or forgotten. After all, 13 years is not such a long time. You know, most people alive will remember the end of that war. And in the meantime, the Safavids had been reforming their army with the help of an sort of English mercenary. And after all, their losses to the Ottomans had clearly demonstrated the danger of facing enemies with superior military technology. So the Safavids were learning their lessons. Now that the Ottomans were worn down from fighting in Europe, putting down rebellions both there and in Anatolia, facing unrest in the capital owing to the economic and cultural changes I mentioned earlier, and, to top it all off, had a 13-year-old on the throne, well, it's no surprise that the Safavids saw this is their moment to get revenge. And so the invasion began suddenly on September the 26th, 1603. It's no shock that the Ottomans were completely unprepared and the Safavids were now using modern artillery. In less than a month, Tabriz was captured. And before the end of the year, the Safavids were laying siege to Yerevan in Armenia and had taken most of Georgia in a lightning campaign. The Ottoman response came quite late the next year. With an army under a pasha, commander, not departing Constantinople until June 15th, which you can guess is pretty late in the, in the kind of campaigning season, and it's not exactly a short march to the Caucasus, let alone all the way to the Safavid border. By the, time the, by the time the army kind of got there, the Safavids had already taken Yerevan. The Ottomans, though, did arrive in November, and the Safavid advance had been stopped, although it was too late in the season for the Ottoman army to do very much else, and so they decided to spend the winter in Van, in eastern Anatolia, around Armenia. The Ottoman army, for its part, was really not happy with the situation because they had just been marched all the way out here, and so far there had been no real result in all of it. But in the meantime, events in Hungary were also changing the situation there. On September 23rd of that year, 1604, which almost exactly one year after the uh, Safavid invasion, ironically enough, a Hungarian Protestant nobleman named Stephen Boschai, who was the uncle of Sigismund Bathory, began an uprising uh, against the Habsburgs. He had been corresponding with the Ottomans and seeking their support to rise up and gain independence for Transylvania and Hungary. Now, this uprising was brought on by all the burdens the long Turkish war had inflicted on Hungary and Transylvania. Amidst this, Emperor Rudolf had persecuted Protestants and Hungarian nobles who he considered disloyal, all of which gradually stewed and brewed more resentment. Bochkai's Transylvanian estates had been confiscated, and he had actually been forced to remain in Prague during all the recent battles over Transylvania because the emperor didn't trust him. And, well, probably for good reason, as we see. But by this time, the Hungarian commander was back in Transylvania, gathering Hajduks at his side and declaring himself to be Prince of Transylvania, understanding that at the moment liberating Hungary seemed beyond his means and that starting with Transylvania made sense. In October, he defeated a Habsburg army sent against him and then moved into eastern Hungary, calling on nobles to join him. This is where the situation stood as 1604 turned into 1605. Now, it seems the early months of 1605 were quiet both on the Safavid and Hungarian fronts, with no major battles fought. 
However, in May, a tribe in Herzegovina did defeat an Ottoman force there. It seems that this was kind of a remnant of that Serbian uprising that had gone on previously. But the Ottomans retaliated brutally against the local population there in Herzegovina over the summer, and the remaining Serbian leaders again called on Spain and Naples to assist them. But besides a Spanish naval raid on Dures in Albania, the next year, nothing much came of this, and yet again, the population of the Balkans was on its own to face Ottoman reprisals. Meanwhile, in light of his victories, Bochkai asked Rudolf to sue for peace in June. The resulting Treaty of Vienna gave religious liberties to Hungarians in both Transylvania and the Hungarian lands controlled by the Habsburgs. It also recognized Bochkai as Prince of Transylvania, while allowing the people their kind of right to elect future princes in case he died without an heir. However, he did have to give up the title King of Hungary, which he had also recently claimed for himself, because, well, you gotta negotiate. In addition, Transylvania did gain some territories which had been part of Habsburg, Hungary, so a little bit of land traded and the kind of king princedom, I guess, of Transylvania became a little bit bigger. Now, in September of 1605, the Ottomans and the Safavids finally met for a substantial battle near Lake Urmia in northwestern Persia. In a classic maneuver, the Safavid Shah led a cavalry attack on the Ottomans before feigning a retreat, thereby leading them into a trap where the Ottomans were surrounded and attacked, while yet another hidden force assaulted their camp. The the resulting defeat led to around 20,000 of perhaps 100,000 Ottoman soldiers being killed, so a fairly substantial defeat. Now, this is actually the first time the Safavids had ever defeated the Ottomans in a pitched battle, and ironically, they didn't really have to use gunpowder weapons at all to do it. The Ottomans, in response, slowly retreated as the Safavids took more and more territory that they had lost 13 years previously. Now, in light of the worsening situation in the east and the victory of Bochkai in Transylvania, it was pretty clear that this was the best time for the Ottomans to finally seek an end to the long Turkish war. In November of 1605, the peace of Zidvatorok was agreed. It set out a truce of 20 years. The Hungarians, which I believe meant the Habsburgs who ruled part of Hungary, and they held the title King of Hungary, would pay 200,000 forints to the Ottomans and would be forbidden from raiding their territories. And the Ottomans would also be forbidden from raiding from their side. The Ottomans agreed that Hungarian nobles would not be taxed and that the portion of the region that the Ottomans controlled could collect local taxes themselves. Essentially, they're making peace along the border and saying that the Hungarians in Ottoman-controlled territories can run things themselves, although, frankly, they never really abided by those terms. Now, on the whole, while the war had been a defeat for the Ottomans, as they had failed to really make any gains and had actually lost substantial influence and tribute money from Wallachia, Moldavia, and Transylvania, the treaty ending the raids did actually do some good. It stabilized that ottoman Habsburg border, which we know for well over a century has been a very unstable place. Remember that Hundred Years' War with Croatia? The Ottomans and the Croats are raiding each other's territory all the time. This has been dragging on and on and on. But both coming up with kind of a significant, uh, kind of stable idea of where the border lay and agreeing not to raid on either side did bring its own benefits. Also, importantly, this was the first time an Ottoman sultan had recognized any foreigner as having a title equal to his own. 
So it seems things are all pretty calm now. A new normal is coming to the Ottoman world. However, just in the final days of 1606, Bochkai died. In his will, he stated, quote, As long as the Hungarian crown is with a nation mightier than us, with the German and the Hungarian kingdom, is also dependent on the Germans, it will be necessary and expedient to have a Hungarian prince of Transylvania, for he shall provide protection and be of use to them. If, may God grant, the Hungarian crown were at Hungarian hands in a Hungary under a crowned king, we urge the Transylvanians neither to secede from it nor to resist to it, but to rather make efforts according to their abilities and with united will to subject themselves to that crown in the ancient way. End quote. Now this really gives some insight into how the Hungarians viewed Transylvania in light of them not having their own state, and how the clash with Michael the Brave's vision of uniting Transylvania with Moldavia and Wallachia you know, really created some conflict with the Hungarians. And quite frankly, this gives us some real insights into the very early stages of the Romanian-Hungarian clashes over territory and identity and all these things, particularly in Transylvania, that actually continue to this very day. I mean, just as I record this, I'm looking at a lovely hand-carved kind of um, seal from a village in Transylvania where I went to visit a Hungarian friend many years ago. And remember that the Hungarian population of Transylvania is still a very unique group and a group that kind of struggles with what its role is between Hungary and Romania. Now, Boschai named Balint Drugeth as his successor, but rumors swirled that actually Boschai had been poisoned. I mean, he was only 49, so he wasn't old, but he wasn't that young either. His chancellor was accused of falsifying documents to name Balint as the successor in order to prevent Gabriel Bathory, who was the nephew of Stephen Bathory, who had been Prince of Transylvania 20 years previously, as well as King of Poland, Grand Duke of Lithuania, so a guy with some pretty substantial uh, kind of noble backgrounds, and a guy who was also the nephew of Andrew Bathory, who had been Prince of Transylvania seven years earlier. So again, a pretty logical person to succeed, a guy with all the connections in the world. So while as opposed to him, Balint was the son of a guy who ran a county and who was a commander of one of the armies. So not a nobody, but his pedigree was nothing close to Gabriel Bathory's. Now, fortunately for Gabriel, Stephen Bathory had died a year earlier and given Gabriel most of his lands, making Gabriel one of the wealthiest men in Transylvania. Now, the chancellor who named Balint and who was accused of poisoning uh, the, the former prince well, it wasn't so good for him. Uh, the suspicion led him to be lynched in the early days of 1607. And at this moment, Gabriel began to immediately lobby the Ottoman Grand Vizier and members of the Diet of Transylvania for him to be named prince. The problem was, Gabriel was only 17, and the Diet wanted to exert its independence, this independence that it had just won so difficultly against the Haps or kind of from the Habsburgs. And so, it passed a law prohibiting any minor from being elected prince, and instead chose a Hungarian noble named Sigismund Rakotschi. He argued that, well, he was old and suffering from gout and didn't want to be prince, but, well, they persuaded Sigismund to take the job. Everyone, including Gabriel and the Ottomans, pretty much accepted this. Well, everyone except for Emperor Rudolf, who still wanted Balint, and who maybe secretly also wanted to restore Sigismund Bathory, 
really anything to restore Habsburg control over Transylvania. But at this moment, the Haidukes rebelled because no one had bothered to pay them in all of this. And to make a long story short, Gabriel Bathory politically outmaneuvered Sigismund and forced him to abdicate by 1608, allowing Gabriel, now age 19 and legal, to take the position as Prince of Transylvania. Also around the same time Bochkai died, Yermia Movila of Moldavia also died and was succeeded by his brother, Simeon Movila, who had been Voivoda of Wallachia twice before, so now he was running Moldavia. He attempted to realign Moldavia against Poland and towards the Ottomans, and for that he was poisoned by the Poles in 1607. Bad choice. At this point, Moldavia kind of enters a period of civil war between his sons and his brother to decide who's going to take over. But that is going to come next time, when we see the Safavids exert new dominance in the east and the resolution to that war, and an unprecedented event in the Ottoman royal family. Also, there will be new fighting on the high seas and a discussion of the phenomenon of the Sultanate of Women. So, a lot's happening. Don't miss it. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. Check out the Bulgarian language version of the podcast at bghistorypodcast.com, which also has timelines, list of important characters, images, maps, all that kind of stuff for every single episode. So, don't miss it.